is Truth Talks. Welcome back, everyone, to the Truth Talks podcast. I'm your host, Buddy Boone. Thank you all for tuning in today. Here with me today in the sanctuary, we have the pastor of Bellcroft Bible Church. His name is Pastor Matt White. How are you doing today, sir? I am doubly blessed. Doubly I'm blessed. here with you and with all these people in our sanctuary. This is a blessing. Yeah. You do that all the time. I was supposed to introduce them. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But Forgive it's okay. Me. It's fine. I, I get it. It happens. I you, can't you're hold excited. It in. You're excited. I'm just too excited. You're excited. Also with me today is uh, some of the actual the uh, the members of Belcroft Bible Church, and they're here with me today. Hopefully you can hear that. You should be able to. What we're going to do today is actually a question and answer. And um, some of the questions will come from me because I'm full of questions. And then uh, some of the questions are going to come from the folks that's here um, and some that are online. So here we go. Pastor, you ready? Always ready. You ready? Okay. So here's the first question. And um, it really comes off of the the, the strength of... Uh, what you were doing uh, this past Sunday with your uh, kind of new mini-series in, in Romans. Uh, we were going strong in Mark, uh, coming up on our third year uh, of, of learning from you from Mark, and as you are studying it and dissecting it for us, um, what made you go back to or to Romans uh, 13 and kind of go through uh, some of those things? What, what prompted that? Yeah, so um, as an expositional preacher, um, I am pretty tethered to the text and look forward every Sunday preaching the next verse that comes up in the text because I really believe that's God's divinely established means of preaching, and I believe that's the most healthy way for the body of Christ to be fed. So I really do try to stay within the book that I'm preaching as much as possible, and I do believe the Word of God is sufficient for all of our needs, even current cultural needs that come up daily, weekly, monthly. And so the Word of God has divine power over all those things, and it speaks to us. However, that being the case, we are living in unprecedented times. We are living in times unlike any other in our lifetime, in our generation, where we are seeing this snowball of cultural chaos on multiple levels, whether that's covid which, of course, we haven't had a pandemic like this in 100 years, so that's a pretty big deal. 400,000 people, you know, according to the latest statistics, have passed away from this, and millions of people have contracted it. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. Um, the violence, the riots, the looting, the critical race theory riots that we watched all summer long, that's a pretty big deal. And then the political chaos that we have been witnessing throughout this whole season of politics and, of course, the riots and, and, and violence that we witness at the Capitol. Listen, you can go almost a whole lifetime and not experience those things, right? Like a pandemic. You know, whole generations have lived and died and never went through a pandemic. Whole generations have lived and died and never saw the capital of their country, right, invaded. So when you think about these things, these are, these are way more than, than uh, how shall we say it, uh, headlines. Mm -hmm. these, this is history, negative history, chaotic history that needs to be addressed because, of course, the media addresses it, but they address it from man-centered mindset, which is confusing 
and fear-mongering in the way that they talk about it. But we have the word of God, right? That we have the truth that never fails, the truth that always speaks to all of these issues. So we need to address them. I will tell you that my nature is not to jump off the text and preach something else. I think I remember Alistair Bragg saying, talking to pastors in one of the conferences I was at, and he says, men, you're just gonna have to fight the urge to stop your sermon series to deal with all of these cultural issues right. when they come up because there's gonna be so many of them, Please. you'll never stop. But he said, he said, but there will be some that come up that you have to address because you're the, as I even said on Sunday, you're the community theologian. You're the one that people need to hear and listen to when, when for lack of a better word, everything's falling apart. And he said, he said in his, you know, Alistair Begg way, he said, I don't worry about the birds that are flying outside of our church building on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. but if a bird flies into our sanctuary, I'm going to address it, right. right? And he said, it's that way with these cultural issues. If it directly impacts our body in a deep way, it comes into our sanctuary, then I've got to address it. And so I addressed the, the pandemic early on, addressed the Black Lives Matter riots, of course, all summer, and then this political thing, it's not gonna go away, it's only gonna get worse, that's obvious. And if there's one thing that contemporary church is very weak on, if not completely uh, misguided on, it's an understanding of government from a biblical perspective. And so I felt like we've got to get this right or else we're gonna keep being part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And so teaching the series on Wednesday nights like I did was helpful, Mm -hmm. but that was such a small part of our body I wanted it to go out to the whole body and the right. elders basically because they are the ones in charge pretty much said yeah you need to preach on this gotcha now I'm gonna dig a little deeper with this next question because why specifically Romans 13 versus other scriptures because you took you gave us a reason of why you're actually doing this this series but why specifically Romans 13 well because that passage is the most quoted passage when anybody ever talks about government Mm-hmm. using the Bible, right. that is the most concise and clear passage that stands on its own when dealing with government, though it's not exhaustive, so it's not complete. Mm-hmm. But it is very clear and very um, encouraging. Um, but sadly, that's the most misquoted, misinterpreted, misunderstood passage because it's the most quoted, so they go together. So if we're going to camp somewhere, and the way I handle these things as you guys well know by now, because you've been with me long enough and watched me deal with cultural issues, while I'm, I really am topically preaching, I still topically preach expositionally. And so I did it this summer in First Peter. I'll do it now through Romans 13, but we'll work through a passage where we exegete a passage, we exposit the text, we let the text speak, and then I address the topical issue, whatever that is, mm-hmm. after the text has spoken or as the text is speaking. That, that way, it's never the preacher. It's always God's word. And so that's why I'm in Romans 13, because it is the, it is the passage that is paramount. And honestly, purposely, I didn't deal with Romans 13 that, that in depth in mm-hmm. the series on Wednesday nights. Right. And I didn't want what I'm doing on Sunday morning to be a reiteration of Wednesday nights. So that was part of it as well. I could camp in Romans 13 because I, I really didn't talk about it that much. Okay, awesome. Well, let's take a uh, question from the audience here real quick. Uh, Kelly, uh, what you got, sir? So the first question, 
Can you hear me through the microphone? Yep. Everything good? Okay. Why do you say that meeting as a church in multiple services is not what God wants? Mm. <laughs> good question. Yeah. So when you study the word church, um, it's the Greek word ekklesia. It's hard to uh, take that word and turn it into multiple gatherings. The word ekklesia literally means literally in the most literal rendering of the word means assembly, okay? And so actually our English word church is actually not a good translation. I think it was John Wycliffe when he was first translating the Bible into English, literally translated it assembly and con or congregation, meaning the, the group that congregates. And uh, there's a whole etymology of where church comes from and why we use that word, which again, I think is... We, we, we've embraced it, but it's not really helpful in explaining what we do and why we do it. So just the etymology of the Greek word itself starts to drive us to this reality of the church is the assembled ones, right? And so that's what we do. Um, and then when you study it out in the scriptures, especially through the book of Acts, you'll be surprised on what you would see is not what you think. Right? We know the church met in homes. There's no doubt about that, though that doesn't come up as often as we like to think. You like to think that the church always met in homes in different places. That is not the case. Um, but we do see that. And oftentimes when you see that, it was in a midweek gathering like we would do in a small group setting, like I did last Thursday night when I met with the Shepherds Institute guys, a group of them down at Wabana in, uh, in one of the gentlemen's homes. Right? We were assembled together in that home to study God's word. And of course, you all know that. And many of you ladies have done that in my home with my wife. And so it's not that the church doesn't at times in a dissected group meet in homes. We know that. But for the corporate gathering of the, of the worship, it was generally, and this is what you see throughout the study of scripture, they gathered together in one place. And when they gathered together in that one place, that is considered the church. That's why when you read through all the epistles, you see really clearly that it was one church. So you had the church in Rome. You had the church in um, Thessalonica. You have seven letters written to 27 churches in, in Revelation 2 and 3. Seven. You have seven letters written to seven churches that all have seven pastors, right? One pastor per church. So when you start to exegete this and start to really study it, you start to realize really quickly that this is how they met even early on. And this, is, this was God's design. And um, you also see it really interestingly when you read um, a passage that we know pretty well, but we don't really consider it well enough. And that's the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 when it deals with communion. And when you deal with that passage um, in 1 Corinthians 11, with the Corinthian church, which was one church, the issue that they were dealing with was what? When they gathered together for church, clearly they're not in their homes, they're coming together in a central meeting place to gather as the church. What was happening? There was divisions, there was factions, because people weren't waiting. The, what it really was, was the wealthier people weren't waiting for the poorer people who were working to get to get off their jobs and come to church, which they often would meet in the evenings on Sunday evenings. 
after people worked. And so they weren't waiting for that. And rather than waiting for them to come, they went ahead with the love feast and the communion service. And by the time that the older or the poorer people would get there, all the food was gone, all the wine was gone, everything was gone, and there was division in the church. And that's what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 11. And he's saying, this is ridiculous. Why are you not, why are you not waiting until you all, and the word he uses there five different times in 1 Corinthians 11 is what? Why are you not waiting until you all come together? You have to all come together. You must all come together. He uses it five different times in like 15 verses, right? And this reality of communion is to be all together. It's what the word communion means. You cannot commune across the internet, right? As much as we would like to think that we can commune when part of Belcroft's at Wabana and part of Belcroft's here, we're not communing, right? You can't fellowship. Communion deals with looking across the aisle at your brother as well as looking up to Christ. You commune both ways when you are honestly doing communion biblically. And so when you start to take all of that in and understand that scripturally, you start to realize, yeah, God has a design here that the church is the called out ones. The other thing that's interesting about that too is when you study it in scripture, and this is part of where baptism comes in and membership comes in, there's two sides to the church. There's the universal church or the invisible church, and then there's the local church or the uh, visible church. You would think, again, if you've studied this out, there's about 108 or 110 times that ecclesia is used either in the singular or the plural form. If you look those, all of those up in the New Testament, you would find that about 80-some percent of the time it's local church, it's that intimate gathering, not the universal church. Most people would think it's the other way around. So most people are always quick to go, yeah, well, it's the universal church. Most of the time in scripture, it's not the universal church that's being referenced. It's the intimate local gathering of believers of which the elders oversee, of which communion takes place, of which church discipline happens, all of these things. And so all the local churches, though, is a, is a manifestation of the of the universal church, right? And so there's a local uh, manifestation that happens for the world to see of Christ's kingdom work happening at that location. Mm -hmm. And so when the church assembles as a body, we serve as, in, as, in, as ambassadors or a embassy for the world to see what Christ is doing. That's why our local assembly is so important because it serves as an evangelistic a light that we shine forth that the world watches and says, oh, wow, look at what those people are doing. Something's different. There's an assembly, a gathering that's happening there that grabs attention, that stands as a light, that stands as, as an evangelistic proclamation that there is something going on there. And that's part of God's design, which you see that even, even in the New Testament as well. So, yeah, there's a number of reasons for that. I got a uh, another angle of this though, because uh, you know I, the devil doesn't need an advocate, but uh, I'm going to uh, give you another uh, angle on this. The thing is, it's like okay, so in our in our area there are a ton of mega churches, and one particular church I'm thinking of, uh, they have several locations. Yep. Uh, they have you know uh, this one here, that one there. And one Sunday, uh, this particular pastor will go to one of those locations and yep. preach, and it's being broadcast to the other churches. Yep. Now, uh, what is wrong with that? 
Like, why is that a, 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 in your, from what you're saying, it seems like it's a bad idea to have these multiple locations. Yeah. I remember another pastor who would have a helicopter to fly him from one building to the other building uh, on a Sunday morning so that he can preach at this place and that place and everything like that. Uh, another pastor that's uh, close to here, they have about six services throughout the, uh, throughout the Sunday, uh, some in the evening. Uh, what is, what is the, now they are gathering, they're gathering in the church building. So what would be the issue with that? So there's multiple ways to look at this. There's multiple sites and there's multiple services or there's both. Right, and so there's different ways you can classify this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm personally against all of them, but again, I think it's becoming clear more and more why. Um, but here's what you will find every time this happens, especially multiple sites. Multiple sites would be the worst. Anytime you divide the flock up, whether it's two services, so you have an early service or a later service, or whether you have two sites or multiple sites, which became a big deal in the last 20 years, really wasn't before that, is this always happens, and anybody that's done this for any length of time will admit this. You end up with multiple churches. What does that mean? You end up with multiple assemblies that gather together that serve one another. So what would happen here if we continued with two services, you would have the 830 service, which would become its own church. It would become its own assembly of people that would serve one another, that would care for one another, that would watch out for one another, but they really wouldn't know a whole lot what was going on in the 1030 service. Mm -hmm. And we would work hard to try to stop that because every church tries that in the beginning. But in the end, it ultimately defeats itself if the church grows because you just can't keep a lid on it. This is how this works. So at Grace Community Church, they have the same exact predicament. So what they did to try to deal with that is they created what's called fellowship groups. And those fellowship groups become the connecting point because you got to have a point. The body is commanded. We're commanded over 50 times, all right? This is, this is big. This is all body life. This is all ecclesiology. We're commanded over 50 times to serve one another, love one another, care for one another, uh, sing with one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, and the list just keeps going, okay? Now, here's the problem. Who are the one another's? They're all the people you've assembled with. They're all the people you've agreed to, hey, I'm gonna come together with these people and love on them. But where's the default in that? I'll tell you where the default is. You do that with the people you're most connected with, right? Well, yeah, I'll love, I'll, I'll love that person because they're my friend, <laughs> right? And this is what happens, right? So are you really fulfilling the one another's by simply loving that person who's your next door neighbor is in your church? rather than that person across the aisle that you really need to go get to know and serve and give yourself to, right? And so that's what happens. You form these, these church cliques, and it becomes really easy, and you're doing it, and you're talking yourself into the fact that, yeah, we're fulfilling the one another's when you're really not. And so that's one of the dilemmas that we face. And so you have Titus chapter 2, which sets the sets the paradigm for how ministry is supposed to happen, where you have the older and the younger together, okay? That we are commanded to have that. Most churches don't follow it. They, they, they disintegrate God's design in that. We are f striving for that. So I asked uh, not too long ago how it worked at Wabana. And uh, don't take this the wrong, wrong way, somebody, but I said, who's the oldest person and the oldest couple at Wabana? And I won't mention their name, but I was told who they were, and they're not that old. Yeah. They're really not that old. 
Yet, where are all the older people of Belcroft? They're right here on a Sunday morning. We got them all. Yeah. And I would say we got the best and the brightest. You guys are missing out down there at Wabana. <laughs> you guys need some love from these older people. You, you see how this works, right? Mm-hmm. It's, so we do what we're doing temporarily because we have to, and we're trying to make the best of it. But that can't continue. That's unbiblical. That's unhealthy, right? And the same thing is, Wabana's got some of our best and brightest of our youngest, yeah. right? Especially some of our young adults who are part of the Wabana camp. We need them here. Mm-hmm. Our olders need them. Mm-hmm. And so you see how this works, where God's design has always been for the older and the younger and the middle-aged to all be together, doing life together, right? Because it never fails. And this is what happens when you have like an older group or a youth group or a young adults group and everybody navigates. It's called segregation, right? That's how most churches are, are, are divided. They segregate groups. And you can have times for groups to meet. We have a men's group and a women's group. But that doesn't define our church. Right. What defines our church is not segregation, right? It's assimilation where everybody's coming together and serving one another and growing together. Because here's why. It is really easy for me to love on the men in our men's ministry. Mm -hmm. That just comes natural, right? But it's a whole lot harder for me to get with some of our older folks or even some of our younger folks, right? Mm -hmm. And that stretches me and that helps me, that helps me sacrifice more. It helps me love them in a way that costs me, right? And Mm -hmm. vice versa. And I'm blessed by them Mm -hmm. in some ways better. That's the body of Christ. It's easy. I've had couples come to me and say, yeah, I don't need to be a part of the church. And I'm like, okay, well, the Bible would say otherwise. You're commanded to be part of the church. Yeah, but I don't need to be part of a church to grow. I'm like, okay, explain. Well, my wife and I are growing in the Lord like crazy. We're reading the Bible. We're praying. And I'm like, okay, here's what I know to be true, okay? And all of us are seduced in this. It is extremely easy for me to love my wife. It's, there's no work involved in loving my wife. A matter of fact, there's a lot of work in her loving me, but it's really easy for me to love her, right? But it's hard sometimes for me to love you. And don't respond back to me because I know it's hard for you to love me, especially when I've been <laughs> preaching for an hour and 15 minutes, right? But that's where true love is tested and true love is defined and true love is grown. So I've had this conversation with couples and one in particular, and I've said, that's great. I'm thankful that you guys are growing. But you see that person over there? You need to go love that person. Yeah. And, and when you start, come back and tell me how that's going. And I'll tell you, you just keep persevering it because that's when you begin to grow. That's when you begin to see your own pride and your own arrogance and your own foolishness. And that's the body of Christ Mm -hmm. where we friction, we love on one another. That's God's design. And when you split that up into multiple churches, I don't care who you are. I don't care. Grace Community Church is probably without any exaggeration, probably one of the most healthy, mature churches on the planet Mm -hmm. and they struggle with it because they have no choice because they're 8,000 people and they only have a building that will handle essentially 3,000 at one time. And so they have tried to get around it in every way they know how. And it's still an issue because that's the way it goes. Because there are other pastors that have come out of there in that area, correct? I remember uh, um, one of the members I used to go here was kind of far away from Uh, yep. Grace Community wanted to go to Grace Community, it's too far away, but he found a church plant out of Grace Community and was going there. But it's, you know, it's 
it's kind of difficult when you have so many people that are attracted. And I I love the fact that they're attracted to the word that's being preached versus the program or the music or something like that. So there's a difference in having to do multiple services. Okay. I want you to think about this. There's a difference if you have to, because you have no other option. So if the Lord and this, I, I have no forecast of this happening, but hypothetically, if we showed up on Sunday and there were 500 people trying to get in the door, we would have to do something to minister, right? We would have no choice. That's different if you have no other recourse and you're just trying to minister and preach the gospel and do, but that's not what happens today. And if you know of somebody where that's happened beyond Grace Community Church, tell me, because I can't think of one church that that's ever happened, but this is how it works. They say, let's grow the church. So to do that, we'll do multiple services, and therefore, we'll get more people in. While that's a good business proposition, that's not a biblical methodology Mm -hmm. for doing church. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference there. If you're forced to do it by God, i.e., in what he does, that's a different story, and then you try to work around it and do all you can. Um, But the church today isn't that. The church today is driven by business practices. It says it's all about getting people in the door, so we'll do all these fancy tricks, and that's huge. The other thing I can tell you without any shadow of a doubt is any pastor that ever goes down the road of multiple services, multiple sites, they always do it because of that reason, because they want to try to grow the church, and every time they do it for any length of time, they always regret it. And I've talked to many of them. When they admit honestly, they always say, I wish we would have never done this because it split our church into multiple factions. Yeah. And then sometimes it goes into like you have the, uh, well, this is a one particular church, but another church is like, well, yeah, you know, this is a, a, this is a different type of experience in this service versus this service. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely splits a contemporary versus uh, traditional. And, you know, we sing hymns in this, in, this, in this service. We sing, you know, other songs in this one. So, yeah, I definitely could see how that would be a yeah, problem. Yeah, and, and elders are commanded to shepherd the flock, First Peter 5. That is what? Do you know First Peter 5, 1 to 4? Shepherd the flock that is among you, mm. right? That's how I know I'm not responsible for the believers down the street. Right. I'm responsible to the believers who are here, mm. right, who have assembled here, who have aligned themselves here, who say, hey, I want you to shepherd us. I want to, you know, grow here. I want to serve here. That's how we know, Hebrews 13, 17, that I and, the, and the, all the elders have to give an account for their souls. I don't have to give an account for everybody's soul, praise the Lord, mm-hmm. but for the ones that are here. Yeah. So uh, let me, Kelly, let me get a question from you real quick. After that, I have a quote that I want you to respond to. So uh, You want Kelly to respond to? No, uh, oh, you okay. to respond Good, to. Good, because I was looking forward to that. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Um, so there's so many good questions. Um, So let's go with this one. Uh, So when we are studying scripture, what would you say are the top five mistakes we make as we approach this study? And as a follow-up, what are some safeguards we can put into place to guard against these mistakes? Okay, number one, I'll try to answer these faster because if we have questions, I love that. I want to get through them. Number one, studying scripture is not reading it in context without question. Huge, the biggest issue. 
meaning you don't read what comes before, you don't read what comes after, you don't understand the context. Number two is bringing your own interpretation to the text rather than letting the text interpret itself without question. Number three, by allowing culture to drive your interpretation. That's that. So this, let me get, show you how massive this is. All of the women who claim that they can be pastors or all the women who are, who are uh, shall I say, open to women being pastors are all doing and saying that because of culture, not because of the text. The Bible is crystal clear without any reservation. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, there's no, there's no ambiguity. Paul said very clearly, I do not allow a woman to teach and have authority over a man. I don't know how you interpret that any other way. That's not a gray area. However, they interpret it this way. They bring culture. Culture becomes then a hermeneutical principle by which you now interpret scripture based upon your culture. Because okay? of Paul, because Paul was mean and all that. Yes, yeah. yes. And this is becoming a big deal in critical race theory and not to jump ahead to the future series, but, but race, which is not a biblical concept, it's a myth, there is no such thing as race. It's a social construct. Scientifically, there, there's no such thing exists yeah. as race. We are all, there's only one race. It's the human race, mm -hmm. right? And so, however, this is becoming such a big issue in evangelicalism, even in seminaries like Southern uh, Seminary, which is the largest seminary in the country, that they are now teaching a whole new hermeneutical principle in the study of Scripture, and it's called race where you have to read scripture through different lenses of race. Uh, what does that mean, pastor? That means if, if I am a pastor, I should not be listened to if I haven't read a commentary on the pastor, on the passage written by a black author. That's crazy. If I haven't read a commentary written by a black author, then I really can't understand that passage in its entirety and what it's saying. That's using race as a hermeneutical principle that over that's horrible steps yeah biblical hermeneutics yeah so that's yeah so uh cultural bringing culture into it um let me think number four would be um making a passage say more than it's meant to say so you, you would take a passage, so you're studying scripture, and you take a passage, and instead of just letting it say what it says, you then take what it says, and you explode it mm -hmm. into saying something it's never meant to say, right? And so this is where passages become proof texts, a proof text, where it's, it's um, I, you can say it this way, where your theology is based upon one verse, okay? It's the same thing. So um, you. What do you mean by proof text? What a proof like? text where you have. So it's like, Pastor, you believe this, and I spout out my verse. Well, mm -hmm. I believe that because such and such says it, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, God loves everybody the same. This is a, this is a this is a really big one in theology. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. There you go. God, God loves you and has a great plan for your life, right? Hmm. God loves the world. God loves everybody the same. That's not at all theologically sound or biblically accurate. However, you can quote John three sixteen and build your proof text for right. proving that God loves everyone the same. That's a proof text, but that's... That's 
horrible Bible study. Is that like bending scripture to prove your point? Is yeah, that, or, or, or taking scripture to make your point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, making gotcha. it say more than, than it's supposed to say or what it should say. Gotcha. So, yeah, those are some serious issues. And, um, yeah. All right. I want you to respond to this quote here real quick, then I'm going to go to the next question. <clears throat> Someone said this in a prayer. To your glory, majesty, dominion, and power forever. Hallelujah, glory, hallelujah, and the strong name of our collective faith. Amen. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on uh, that, the ending to that prayer and, uh, you know, what we, should, uh, what we should think of it, I guess. Yeah, so... Um... <laughs> That is, that is classic ecumenical speech. And all that means is that is classic, that is classic political ambiguity that means nothing. So this is, and pastors are really good at this, and, and, and politicians have PhDs in it. And what does that mean? That means uh, pastors and politicians have a lot in common. They are good at saying nothing by saying something. Do you know where this is from? I have an idea because it sounds to me like it's political, like before somebody praying before some sort of government or something. This was the benediction how... on the, at the inauguration. Oh, so there you yeah. go. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's how that always works. Mm -hmm. So you always have, like you'll hear this before the Senate or you'll hear this before whatever. And it's always ecumenical. It's praying in such a way that you don't really know what I mean and you can't really be offended by what I say, mm -hmm. right? And so that's why you will never hear or you, you will hear it every so often and then that person will never get invited back. But every so often you'll hear somebody pray on the floor of a Senate or the House or somewhere politically and they'll use Jesus' name. Mm. And that person will never get invited back, right? Right. But instead, they'll use our collective faith. Mm -hmm. Well, I know this, that there's only one faith that matters. There's only one faith that's true. There's only one faith that's real. There's only one faith that saves. You know, mm -hmm. Paul himself said that in Ephesians 4, right? There's only one name under heaven by which all men must be saved. Mm -hmm. Peter said that in Acts 4, mm -hmm. right? That's the name we pray in. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the mediator, right? First Peter or First Timothy two. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's not Buddha. It's not Mary. It's Jesus Christ. So we go to Him, right? We bring our prayers to Him, mm -hmm. and uh, ultimately He uh, then ushers us into the throne room of heaven because we have no right to be there. We have no authority to be there apart from Christ. So, yeah, that's that's just political pastoral, and pastors fall prey to this all the time, where they speak in such a way where it's unclear, it's ambiguous, you don't know what I mean, you can't, and I, trust me, I know all about this because I'm a pastor. I know the danger of this because I know when I get into a pulpit, if I say what the text means and I say what needs to be said so that it's clearly understood, it's going to offend, mm -hmm. it's going to hurt, or it's gonna rub shoulders, or it's gonna create friction. And I can tell you, I, for one, don't want to do that. And I don't know of anybody that would, like, wants to get up. I'm, I mean, maybe there are some people, but not in my sphere, that want to get up and cause problems, right? Yeah. And yet, this book causes problems. Like, Jesus Christ is the one himself who said, I came to divide, right? I came to bring a sword. And the gospel offends. 
if it's preached rightfully. Mm -hmm. And so I know the tension when you stand behind the holy desk, the pulpit, open God's word, and you're like, this is going to hurt. This is, this is, and I know then how I can take a passage easily and word it in such a way where some of you are like, preach a pastor, and other ones are like, oh, yeah, that was good Mm -hmm. because I haven't been clear, right? I can do that. Every pastor can. And if I care about pleasing people, that's what I do. Right. But if I care about pleasing the Lord, you preach the word and you let the chips fall wherever they will because you just want God to be pleased. And he's only pleased from the preacher when he actually delivers the message as it was meant to be delivered. Mm-hmm. And that means accuracy and clarity. And so, yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, I didn't look at it that way. The The first thing that, that caught my attention when I heard it was our collective faith. Yeah, and it means nothing. Yeah, that's, I, I just saw the coexist. It just means coexist. everybody can come together. Yeah. Everybody can kumbaya. We all love God, and we're all going to hell, but I won't tell you that. Right. I saw the coexist bumper sticker, yeah, and I, my first question was, which faith are you talking about? Yeah. our collective faith? I mean, that, that means nothing. Satan is very happy with that kind of prayer. Yeah. Yep. So yep. that's reality. So, Kelly, what you got? All right, our next question is, as believers, are we supposed to fast? If yes, when, why, and how? Yeah, so I dealt with this early on in Mark, and I will mm-hmm. say there is an, an implied, you can go back and listen to the sermons there, and I think it's Mark 3, Mark, yeah, Mark 3 when this comes up. There is an, there is an implied um, that this would be part of the, the disciples' life, but there is not a command. You won't find that in the New Testament a direct command to fast. But what you see is Jesus talks about it and he says, when you fast, right? When you fast, don't do like the Pharisees do. When you pray, don't do this. So there's clearly an implication that there would be fasting as part of the uh, believer's life. But if you're gonna uh, look for an exhortation, a command, you're gonna have a hard time looking for that and finding that. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's that's something that comes up. Fasting is interesting because fasting um, is pretty clear in Scripture what it was about, and it was always based upon this. It was putting aside, most of the time, it almost always dealt with food, right? So we often will say, yeah, I'm fasting from whatever. You know, I'm, I'm fasting from, you know, watching TV, or I'm fasting from, you know, eat, drinking coffee. That's a big one. I'm on a coffee fast. Well, that's not really what the text is talking about, right? The text is talking about I'm specifically, and again, it's always in the context of food, I'm specifically not going to eat my lunch so that I can utilize that time when I would normally eat to focus on Scripture and prayer, to, to essentially focus my attention on whatever it is that's that's bothering me, right? I'm praying to God on behalf of somebody and I want to give a concerted effort in that direction. And so I'm gonna utilize the time when I would normally be eating to focus on praying. The other thing about that and why it's often tied with food is because our stomachs automatically talk back to us when we've gone without food. And so in that mode of fasting, as my stomach or, or even my, my mind starts dealing with that, that's like a trigger, I need to pray. 
I need to pray. So it's almost like an internal alarm that drives me further mm. into that. And yeah. so it's a discipline of grace. It's a discipline. Fasting is a discipline of grace to grow in the grace of, of God through whether I'm reading scripture or most specifically I'm praying to the Lord specifically about a burden. Most of the time when fasting is spoken of in the Bible, and it's most often spoken of in the Old Testament, it had to do with judgment, right? This is a side, again, not, not spoken of, and I preached on this, so you can go back and listen to it. But it most of the time dealt with judgment, and it dealt with fasting in relationship to repentance so that I'm earnestly seeking the Lord in rectifying and repenting my life, repenting of the sin, so that I'm purging out and so that I can uh, be reconciled in my relationship with the Lord mm -hmm. and dealing with that. But it could be, at times, we see it in a burden. Some, somebody's, somebody's in a bad state spiritually or physically, and my heart is burdened for them, and so I'm going to fast and pray specifically. I mean, we see this with the prophets. When they're burdened for Israel's spiritual health, they will fast, or they'll call for a national fast to pray to where the people would come back to the Lord. That's, that's what it was. So in the Christian's life, it clearly can be, and in some ways should be, a part of the spiritual means of grace by which we are doing this as a discipline to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, just like prayer, just like scripture reading. That's Those good. Where, when, when do we, because I know we talked about that on the podcast, and then you yeah, uh, kind of mentioned it in Mark. It was, I know it was after somebody, yeah, it's uh, in, Jesus healed somebody. Yeah, it's in, uh, I feel like it's in Mark. Chapter 2, yeah. uh, starting in verse 18. Yeah, I thought it was in Mark 3, but. Okay. Yeah. Yep, that's a oh, question. Yeah, because fasting. they asked about John the Baptist's disciples fasting, right? Again, yep. they, you know, why don't your disciples fast? And John the Baptist's disciples do, and did a whole thing on that. Right, cool. What you got, Kelly? All right, so this next one uh, is in a previous Wednesday night class, you once said the problem with our justice system is that nobody dies anymore. Could you explain what you meant by this? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Could you explain what you meant by this? And um, also, what would that be can't a more, be misinterpreted? <laughs> a more uh, biblical justice system? What would that look like? So uh, we'll deal with this in Romans 13 very clearly when uh, Paul says, I think in verse 4, that the uh, government bears the sword. He bears the, the government bears the sword as a minister of God. Clearly the sword is speaking of there as a weapon or a, an act of judgment that brings death, punishment, ultimately death. And um, so um, I know I have a lot to say about this, so this will come up in the sermon series. But in the Bible, and this will come up not only in Romans, but uh, very intimately in the next series, on critical justice movement. In the Bible, God demands justice. And justice isn't racial justice, it's not economic justice, it's not environmental justice, it's just justice, okay? And this is massive. Biblical justice needs no adjective, it's just justice, right? And so the Bible talks very clearly about this, and when it talks about justice in the realm of, of cr crime, it's always supposed to be appropriate according to the level of the crime. It's always supposed to be swift, okay? This is huge. This is even, even part of why our justice system originally was developed the way it was because it was driven by the law of God in large part by Calvinism and John Calvin, and there's a whole history here 
uh, behind this and how our constitution is, was even uh, set up. But justice is always supposed to be appropriate. It's always supposed to be swift, okay? This, it, there is no justice in throwing someone in jail for life, okay? That's not justice. That doesn't bring justice. You won't find that in the Bible, right? Look in the Bible for somebody being imprisoned for life according to God's standard. You won't see that. What you'll see is, you'll see very clearly that if somebody is a murderer and they're proven to be a murderer, their life is to be taken. That's justice. That's biblical justice, right? That's what Genesis chapter 9 is all about. Where, um, and I'll speak on this, not this Sunday, but next week, where the government was designed to bring order to a society that is heading towards complete disorder. And part of the order is, if man is going to run the limits of his sin and take life, then man's life must be taken, okay? That's capital punishment. That brings immediate order to society. When you know, if I run... The, the course of my own passions and I take life, my life's gonna be taken as well. That immediately establishes what justice is and it's just and it's swift and it's, it's equitable in every way and it's clear, it's across the board. If you take life as a, as a, as a murderer, then, then your life is gonna be taken. But yet in God's design, there were clearly cities of refuge, right? Where people could go and then they could be safe because there was in the law of God, there was the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and where you had the right to avenge yourself in that sense. But if a person got to a city of refuge, then he was safe there until his case could be made with the local officials. And if he was found to be um, a criminal, if he was found to be a murderer, then ultimately his life was to be taken. This whole idea of the criminal justice system we have is a mess. This is, it is a royal mess. And this idea of lifelong incarceration, it just breeds all kinds of injustice. So there is massive injustice that, that is going on around us, and we've bred it, right, because we're not following God and his design. And so that's what that statement is driving, this reality that capital punishment doesn't happen as it should, and I know there's all kinds of issues with it because these things are complex. Yet, as God designed it, it doesn't happen as it should, and therefore, crime spreads and uh, massive injustices are done. Well, there's another level, I think, to that as well, is that, uh, and, and you've said this many times, or I've heard it said many times by a, a number of good preachers, is that, you know, the parents are the problem as well. Because sure. if, if, okay, I did not really fear going to jail. I feared my father. I feared my mother. You can take me to jail. I'm, I'm gonna be okay. But when I got home is when I really would, would fear because I know that they would, if they didn't kill me, it would get real close. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of it's, it's like with the lack of that, then you're going to that level. Yeah. And there's some criminals that are okay with going to jail because they have friends there or you know, something totally. like that. So it goes both ways. It's like some of the people that we've heard stories of where they've been pardoned by presidents, right? They had a first time of drug offense and they were thrown in jail for life. What is that? Mm. That's not justice. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous, right? That's a crime. Not, uh, the, the, that's the um, sentence not being appropriate to the crime. 
Mm-hmm. Totally, in, and God spoke about this multiple times with Israel, that you're not just in, in mitigating out your crimes. You're being harsh on some people, and you're being too lenient on others. And a matter of fact, the Bible talks about this, even in Proverbs, that that is the sign of a wicked judge, mm. where he is, he is handing down judgments that aren't balanced, that aren't even, right? Of course, that's, we have that in our land, which is awful, mm. right? So let me be really clear. One of the reasons why what happened on January, what is it, January 6th, the Capitol thing? Yeah. One of the reasons that happened is because all summer long, we allowed the riots and the violence and the looting and the burning and the, cr- the criminal activity to go unpunished. I mean, you can't deny that. And it's sad. It's sad to see how this works. So that's what that statement was saying, and that's where government has lost sight of what God's design is for them mm. as it pertains to bringing about justice. Mm. And again, I know there's all kinds of issues with that that have to be dealt with. It's not, it's not an easy thing because you have complexities and all of that, but we're just talking about what God's Word says and how this should work, and, and you'll hear a whole sermon on that when we talk about what does Paul mean when he says the government bears the sword of God, and uh, pretty important. There was another question that was right after that one. What was that question, Kelly? Did he answer it or? Um, I don't yes. remember. There was a second. There was a second part. So, uh, what would be a more biblical justice system? What would that look like? Yeah, it would be what what I was saying. It has to be swift, right? And then our Constitution even talks about this, right? It's one of our rights is that we have a swift, fair trial. Right, this reality of just being drawn out and mm-hmm. that, that doesn't that that's not right biblically, right? And so, yeah, uh, social justice in the sense of justice in society versus justice in eternity. There's justice coming. We don't want to think about that, but yeah, that is that whatever uh, sentence is handed down is appropriate to the crime, and that it's handed down swiftly and equally, right? So a poor person doesn't get less or more. The Bible talks about this too. In, I think it's in Deuteronomy where it talked about, and this is something we don't think about enough either, where it talks about the injustice of being too lenient on the poor and too hard on the rich, right? It goes both ways mm-hmm. where you can be too lenient on the rich because he's rich because you want the back, you know, you want the back right, hand. Right. But you can also be too lenient on the poor and say, well, he's poor. Mm-hmm. And it's like in biblical you know, sense, Justice is justice for all, right? It's equal. It doesn't matter, you know, where you are on the economic static. It matters based upon the law. Right. You break the law, then this is what's coming. And, of course, it needs to be appropriate. It needs to be swift, and it needs to be equal. Yeah. I have some questions, but I want to get to you all's questions. So, uh, Kelly, what you got? So the next one is, how do we deal with close friends and family, believing and non-believing, who are following the world's direction when it comes to race, LGBTQ issues, what can we say? Uh, are we just supposed to dust our feet of family, or what, what should we do? You just got to love them. Honestly, you've got to love them. You've got to be patient with them. You've got to be clear with them, but you can't crucify them. You've got to love them by your example most specifically, and you can't sugarcoat the issue 
but you can't beat them over the head uh, beat them over the head with it every single time you're with them right and so the bible talks about this very clearly in Matthew 10 where uh, the lord says i'm sending you out my sheep uh, amongst the wolves you're going to die you're going to be persecuted you're going to be dragged before kings you're going to be dragged before governors you're going to be beaten you're going to and you're literally going to die but he says live what live harmless as doves and wise as serpents and even in the context, he said, there's going to be times you're going to be persecuted, flee, flee to the next city. There's going to be other times you're going to be persecuted, stand your ground, be arrested and die for the cause and represent me well. And don't worry about what you're going to say because the spirit of God will give you the words to say. There's a principle in there, that principle of prudence and wisdom that should cover all of life because the book of Proverbs is all about prudence and wisdom. When it comes to evangelizing, especially those closest to us, it's sometimes we feel like defending the faith means I eviscerate all wisdom and prudence. No, you can defend the faith without compromising while also being wise and prudent. Once your case is clear, once your loved ones know where you stand, they know where you stand. You just now love them. Doesn't mean you won't talk about it again down the road when the time is appropriate. But again, you... Part of the issue is you're not the Holy Spirit in their life. You're not the one who brings regeneration. You're not the one that removes the scales from their eyes. You're just the mailman, right? And so it's like the mailman in our neighborhood. He can't make me open the mail. He can't make me read the mail. His job is simply to put the mail in the slot, and yep. it's my job to do the rest. Mm -hmm. Your job is to bring the mail to your loved ones. And once you brought the mail, the rest is between them and God. Mm -hmm. Now, the other side that you're responsible for is to live in such a way that makes opening the mail enticing. And this is where the rubber meets the road, yeah. that we would be ready to, to uh, give an answer for the hope we have in Christ, i.e., be ready for them to ask and live in such a way that entices them to ask, 1 Peter 3. Or as Paul says in Colossians 4, have our words always seasoned with salt, right? Where, where we speak in such a way and we live in such a way that it's an additive to the conversation that entices people, that makes, makes the conversation better like salt does me right. and purifies it and preserves it and makes them go away and think, I never thought about that. Or, you know, I'm scared to death for COVID like most of our families are, right? I'm scared to death. I'm scared to death. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I don't go anywhere. I don't go anywhere. And then they see you acting in such a way that not without prudence and wisdom, but not without fear. And they're like, wonder why? Wonder why Aunt Matilda's not really that worried about that. Wonder why she keeps going to church. Ah, the assembly together. Wonder why she keeps doing that. I mean, I barely go to the store because I'm not going to get this. And when I do, I wear four masks and gloves yeah. and my hazmat suit. Wonder what's going on with Aunt Matilda. What? Maybe I ought to ask her. Now Aunt Matilda shares the gospel when, when they call and say, right. why aren't you scared? I'm glad you I'm asked. I'm glad you asked. I yeah. I was and so that's, you have to, you have to love your loved ones. Now, there may come a time where it's time to part ways because of the lifestyle they're living and because of the core biblical convictions you have. And when that time comes, then that time comes, and you just have to trust the Lord with that. But if that comes, it should come primarily from them, mm. not from you. Now, if there's a situation, I tell this often with parents with young children, you have to be careful, especially families, and we have some, even in our midst where they have, um, let's just say, uh, homosexual relationships beyond in the extended family, right? 
and I'll tell you this without any reservation, you are responsible before God in how you raise your children and what you teach them. You have to be really careful in putting your children in an environment that's going to lead them astray, right? That's going to send them down a wrong path. Mm -hmm. And so while your children are formidable, while your children are, are moldable, you have to be really careful in what you do with them, where you take them, and how you let others interact with them, right? But as they get older, that, that you have more of a, a flexibility because you've trained them, you've equipped them, you've prepared them, and then you can involve them at a greater level in some of those family relationships, then they can be a, a light, they can be an encouragement. But you just have to be, back to the phrase, wise as doves, or wise as serpents, harmless as doves. I'm gonna add something that you taught me to do. Well, you, you tell me to do all the time, and another thing is you can just pray for them. I mean, Absolutely. That's, that's, that's one of the most practical things I think you can do. Pray um, for them and live an uncompromising life before them. I've, you've heard me say it. You'll never, ever, ever know how much one holy life impacts another, especially the unbelievers around us. Mm -hmm. Your faithfulness to God's word is saying way more to them than what you will say. You have to say it, and you should say it. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that old adage, which is not biblical, preach the gospel without words. You can't do that. That's a good tweet that is bad theology. You can't preach the gospel without. The gospel is propositional truth. It's yeah. words. Mm -hmm. So you have to speak it and you have to share it. But once you've shared it with those who see you all the time, and you've shared it no doubt multiple times, then you have to let the Lord do his work. Mm -hmm. And then you have to live it. You have, to, you have to say what you mean and you have to prove it by living what you say. And that is where, for most of us, where the divide happens. Mm. We speak really well, we live really bad. Yeah. And the unbelieving world sees that and that gives them the open door to say, I'm not gonna listen to that because I know who they really are. Mm. All right. All right, the next question is, is man a two-part or three-part being? Is he body and soul, body, soul, spirit? Are the soul and spirit together, or is the spirit birthed when saved? Yeah, so that's a great question. This deals with the trichotomy or dichotomy view of, of man. We are, without question, we are a complex unity, i.e. we, meaning humans, mankind. We are a complex unity of, of, of body and spirit, or to say it even more specifically, material, physical, body, spirit, immaterial, okay? That which you could even say is visible and invisible, right? There's many ways you can break it down. And that's a dichotomous view, two parts. I don't take a trichotomous view. There's only one verse in the scripture that would lead you to that. I think it's in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, maybe. I think it's in 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, and here's why, because throughout scripture, soul and spirit are almost used almost every time interchangeably, where the soul and the spirit, two different Greek words, but they mean basically the same thing. And so they'll be used interchangeably, right? So I'll give you a prime example of this, like um, in Matthew 22, what, 37 to 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Well, now, have we just come up with a quad, 
quadra view of man. Where <laughs> we, yeah, where, yeah, quadratomy or whatever, where we've got four right. parts of man there, right? What is he doing when he, when he brings out those different aspects of man? Well, he's just speaking with emphasis of a totality, right? Love God with every ounce of your being, and he's just driving for emphasis, and Scripture does that sometimes. There's multiple passages in the Scripture where you um, even see within one verse, even within one passage, where you'll have soul and spirit used, and it's clearly speaking synonymously of the same exact thing, right? Not separately. And so you see this in Hebrew. Hebrew in the Old Testament uses soul and spirit most, most often, and then you see it carry over in the New Testament. Most of the time in the New Testament, it uses either spirit or soul, but there are a few passages where you even have, like I said in 1 Thessalonians 5, where you'll have spirit and soul together, but that's not talking about different parts of man. It's literally talking about the immaterial part of man, spirit slash soul, and then you have the physical part of man, which is the body. Mm-hmm. And so you have the body, and this becomes really, really important, very important when it comes to death, and that's why this question comes up, and when it comes to regeneration and eternal life. And, um, and so this becomes even really important, and, and this is a deeper question, but this is where this leads to. Where, where does the soul come from? When does the soul become part of man? There's this whole big debate about that. But this becomes a, a real issue in death because death at the end of the day is really simply separation. That's what death means in the Bible. Every time you see it, it's talking about a separation. There's three types of death in the Bible. So every time you see the word death in the Bible, your first interpretive question is, what kind of death is the writer talking about? So in Ephesians 2.1, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Mm -hmm. He's talking about death there. He's talking about people who are alive. How is he talking about death to people who are alive? It's very confusing if you don't understand this. So you have to look at that and say, what kind of death is he talking about? Well, he's talking about separation on a spiritual level. Every person is born spiritually dead. Every baby, every person, spiritually dead. What does that mean? That means that they are separated from God. There is a spiritual separation between God and man because of sin. Then there's what's called physical death. Barbara just went through that. At the moment that Barbara died Friday morning, her body stopped working. Her blood stopped flowing. Her brain synapses stopped firing. Her heart stopped pumping. She was physically dead. Yet Barbara did not cease to exist Mm -hmm. because what happened in that moment was Barbara's spirit separated from her body, which is interesting because the spirit is what gives the body ultimate life. Now we're getting into some from good theology, but that's a whole nother discussion. But her spirit separates from her body. Her body now is deceased, it's dead. But her spirit goes, as Paul says in Philippians chapter one, immediately into the presence of the Lord, or as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter five. So you have spiritual death, you have physical death, but the scariest of all deaths in the scripture is what's called eternal death, okay? And that's when, if you're spiritually dead already, and you haven't dealt with that through the gospel, and then you physically die, then you go into what's called eternal death, where you are eternally separated from God forever in eternal judgment in hell. And that's the scariest of all, because that is a, is a place and a, 
in a uh, sphere of life, eternal death that never ends. Mm -hmm. So we have a few moments left. I'm going to have you do the gospel at the end here. Um, Wait, we got, we got, we got, we got till eight o'clock. We got more time. Not the way you answer questions. No. Yeah, we can, we can do more. I'll fire them away. All right. Let's I want go. to get as many as I can. This right. is great. So we have four questions. And Neil will go longer, trust me. All right, good. They got pizza, so, you know, they'll yeah, be Yeah, they'll be down there a while. All right. So we have four questions. If, oh, we got uh, five questions. All right. If you can make it through it. We can do this. Okay. So the next question is, given recent events, revelations, would you recommend any Ravi Zachariah, uh, sorry, Ravi Zach Zacharias books or sermons? Would you take his books out of your library? Um, well, I don't really have any of his books in my library, so I don't have any to get rid of wow. in, in that sense. Um, not that, you know, not that he's not helpful to listen to. I'm not saying that. Um, but I think, I think this question comes up all the time. And I would just say, what we need is not to be man followers. And we are, we need to be people of the truth. And that's the problem, right? So every time something like this happens, should I get rid of his book? Should I get rid of his book? And I'm always say the same thing. You'd just be better off to read the book. You just read the Bible. Don't worry about all that other stuff. There, there is no human author, anybody for that matter. I don't care who it is, John MacArthur and below. There is no human author who is without question infallible. That means without error. Every book has error in it. No book should be completely consumed by every word. So in that sense, you ought to get rid of all the books in your library, right? And so you should read every book with discernment. People will ask me all the time, have you read all these books in your library? And my, and my answer is always no, but I've touched just about all of them because I rarely read, I rarely read any book cover to cover because honestly, there are a few books that are worth reading cover to cover, Right? There, most of the times, books have a chapter or two chapters or three chapters that are really good and helpful, and that's it. The rest of it is kind of like, oh, yeah, I read that five years ago in so-and-so's so books. They're just repeating the same thing. And so that's just how it works. And so, yeah, so I would say um, I'm not big on getting rid of books and throwing them out unless we're talking, you know, heresy and and whatnot, and even sometimes it's good to have some of those around to be reminded of the wickedness in, that's in some books. I would say you're better off just to read the scriptures and be, a, be awakened to how so many men are not what we think they are, and over time we learn their theology is, far, is more weaker than we realize, and better off to read less books by men today and read the book and read more books of men who have died. Yeah, that's why I mostly read books by men who are dead and the guys around me that are reading books like our elders who are going through elder training right now. They'll tell you most of the books they're reading are all by dead guys. Mm -hmm. And there's reasons for that. And um, so you're better off read dead guys than most of the guys who are living. Gotcha. OK, so the next one is, is there an age of accountability? So. For an example, if an eight-year-old were to die, do they go to heaven or to hell? Yeah, so is there an age of accountability? In the way that we define it, no. And what that means is we define a specific age. This is an evangelical church term that we've developed that says there's a specific age, like 15, 12, 8. You heard 8 there, 5, 
20, whatever, and that God says, that's the age that I, that I no longer hold that person or hold that per- start holding that person accountable, and you can't find that in the Bible, there is no specific age. But what, what you will find in the Bible very clearly is for Israel, there was a specific a time in which God held that generation accountable. And you can see this very clearly in the wilderness generation. And I can't remember the age, and forgive me, I think it's 18 or 20, where the wilderness generation that wandered for 40 years and died, right? So you have to ask, when did that generation start? Like in God's economy, when did he say, you're in that generation and you're in the next generation? And it was 18 or 20, right? And I can't remember the exact, somebody can look it up and tell me. Um, But, and so it was, and what was interesting about that was part of the reason why Israel disobeyed God was because they were afraid for their children of going into the promised land and dealing with the 31 uh, kings that they had to um, essentially overtake. And they were afraid to do that because they thought their children would die on top of other things. And God tells them as a part of a rebuke, he says, you have been so disobedient and rebellious and so afraid for your children. I'm going to take your children that you were afraid of and you thought you were protecting. I'm going to take them myself into the promised land and leave you out here to die. And that starts the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. So it's interesting when you read that, you clearly see there was, there was a time in which, and it was, it was older, it was either 18 or 20, where God says, yeah, those those people I'm going to allow into the promised land. Well, you have to say, well, were none of them, especially those older teenagers, not sinning, not rebelling with their parents? Obviously, they were. Right. So there's something there where God, in his sovereign providence, and he can do that, he drew the line. But we don't see that, um, we don't see that in the New Testament. But clearly, there is a point in time we see this in Jonah chapter 4 where he talks where he t- tells Jonah you know you need to go into Nineveh because there there's essentially 200,000 there that don't know their right hand from their left he you see this clearly multiple times in the law where God will call children innocent in the sense of and literally say they don't know right from wrong uses that phrase multiple times and so clearly in the eyes of God there is a time frame where a child is innocent, not that they don't have the sin of Adam, we're all born with that, Romans 5.12, but there is a, a reality that you have to have cognitive understanding to sin, right? You've gotta have an understanding of right and wrong to rebel against God at that level. And clearly there is a time in which that comes, but that time is different for all people and even take someone with mental um, incapacities because of various reasons and that person can be 35 years old and still be in such a state that they, they're mentally, you know, shut off where they just don't compute that. And so, yeah, there's clearly something there that goes on. And God is just in all he does. God is gracious and merciful and wise. And so while we can't understand all of that fully, God has that all worked out and we just trust him for that. Mm-hmm. And so, but to say your child's safe at eight, I'm not going to say that, Right. I would say, you know, more than likely your child can't understand the gospel at eight years old. Most can't in what the gospel really is in abandoning yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ. What our children can understand and what they should be understanding is what I call seeds to the gospel. They should be understanding sin, 
They should be understanding judgment. They should be understanding repentance. They should be understanding the lordship of Christ. And those things come in little snippets of time, and then they slowly start to put it together cognitively as they grow, and that comes at different ages. Some child might understand that at five years old, and some do. Other children may not understand that till they're 14, right? And how God deals with that and what he does with that is, is in the providence of God, not in my, my estimation. So the, the, the reality is preach the gospel to your children nonstop. Keep preaching it to them because that's where they're safest mm-hmm. is when they submit to the truth. All right, next one. So this one is, can you give advice or conversation starter help for breaking the ice to witness to a friend or family member where spiritual things never seem to come up? Right now? Yes, ask them if they're afraid. That would be the best question. Hey, man, are you afraid of dying? This COVID stuff's crazy. You know what their answer is going to be? Absolutely. Aren't you? And you say, no. <laughs> Why not? I'm glad, I'm glad you asked. You asked. <laughs> I, mean, you see, I mean, that's how it works, right? I mean, that's, hey, are, are you afraid now that, you know, now that we have a new president? You know, are you, are you afraid of that? <laughs> no, I'm not afraid. Okay, are you afraid? Well, I'm not afraid, but I'm concerned. Why are you concerned? Well, because the heart of man is wicked. Off you go, right? I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of ways you can do that, taking current cultural issues, right, and running with it. Next one. We're on number three. I just want y'all to know that I'm, I'm really proud of Matt right now. Yeah, doing great. Yeah. You give me a cutoff, I'll do it, man. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to preach. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, so I don't know how it's going to go with this one. <laughs> Can you summarize the order of end times events in 30 seconds? There, there it is. Yes, I can do that really good. Okay. The Lord is going to return soon. There you go. That was five. There you go. I can go into all kinds of specifics, but really all we need to know, because it's true, is the Lord is coming back very soon and we need to get ready. Mm. Now we can talk about is that, is that the rapture? And then right on down the line, we can go in that. But, it, but those are details that we can talk about and we will talk about them. But it doesn't matter how you slice up the details. And I mean, it matters because scripture talks about it. But in this sense, it's coming, it's the fact of this, that the Lord is coming back and he's coming back soon and you better get ready for it. Eschatology is interesting because we blow it to places it was never meant to go. Eschatology, Paul talks about this in Romans, at the end of Romans, he talks about it at the end of Second Peter, talks about this in Revelation. Eschatology was given to us for one ultimate reason. Are you ready? And it's not what you think. It's this, that we would live a holy life, that we would live in light of the Lord's certain soon return, and therefore we would live holy lives, knowing he's coming back to judge us, coming back that we would stand before him. Sadly, that's, how not, that's, how, that's not how most people read eschatology. They read it with all kinds of juicy nuggets, like almost good gossip stories, to where they want to put all the pieces together so they can tell their friend and, and go talk about the news and say, yep, here it is, it's coming, versus I see the Lord's coming back like That's why I'm preaching this series in Romans 13. The Lord's coming back, and he's going to find a church that's filled with sin of disrespect for governing authorities. That scares me. That makes me very concerned. I want want him to come back and find a church purified that's 
that's not afraid to call out governing authorities when they are promoting error and evil, but they're able to do it without compromise and without disrespecting speech, mm. right? That's important. Yeah, that's good. Question so, four. With that being said, if a shark eats a Christian and the rapture occurs, <laughs> will the shark be hungry? Uh, I didn't even hear the end of that because I'm, I'm like, technically so, they're eating the body. Yeah. So, but will the shark the be hungry if that Christian is raptured? Yeah. Like, well, the, Christian. I think the shark would be scared. That's what I think. Well, when, when, <laughs> well question, though. He would be like, what happened? Well, question, though. When the rapture happens, will our soul go or will our body and soul go no no just just the, just the spirit just the spirit so that means that the yeah. shark won't be hungry because the shark will eat the flesh yeah because paul says so clearly let me just make it really biblically clear paul makes really clear in first corinthians 15 that that which is um immortal can't put on immortality right so our physical bodies aren't made for heaven. That's Again, this is another discussion, but this will provoke your thought. While we view death as a bad thing, and it is in the sense of it's a judgment of sin upon all of us, it's the effect of sin. Every time you see somebody die, you should be thinking of sin, not personal sin in their life, but the ultimate effect of sin, because that's why we die. Yet at the same time, God in his Romans 8 um, mysterious sovereign way takes everything and he works it for good for those who are called according to his purpose death actually becomes one of the greatest blessings in the believer's life because it's through the portal of death that this body that cannot enter heaven is done away with my spirit is now freed to enter into heaven and then i get in the future resurrection a glorified body made for heaven so that that i can inhabit heaven in a bodily sense like christ did but this body couldn't couldn't enter heaven it, it's not made for that yeah this body in the morning i gotta sit on the side of the bed and warm up like an old buick just stretch <laughs> and you know everything so I'm, I'm so glad and there will be no buicks in heaven <laughs> good f-150s maybe but uh, no buicks. <laughs> that that raptor that raptor version of the f-150 yes. <laughs> that, yeah there you go <laughs> all right last question so that was everybody's questions in here, but I have a question. Um, should a Christian participate in the March for Life? Uh, maybe, maybe. So a lot of these questions, when you deal with these kind of things, um, it's a maybe. It's a maybe, right? Yeah, maybe. It depends. It depends on the march. It depends on where the march is. It depends on who's at the march. It, you know, it. You have to be, you have to be, again, that's why Matthew 10, you have to be harmless as doves, wise as serpents. We have to think about these things a lot better than we normally do, right? Um, very well. I mean, I'm all for uh, sanctity of life. Um, unlike, well, I'll just leave that alone. I am very much for the sanctity of life and very much for defending life. And, and it is totally, there's nothing wrong with, with marching in that sense and standing up and, and, and you know, rightfully protesting in that sense. There, that's not a, there's nothing wrong with that. However, you have to be really careful um, because it becomes, it becomes, and if you've ever marched, you understand this, you realize really quickly that so many of the people you're marching with and standing with do not believe what you believe. And it, it becomes really confusing for so many 
and it will become really confusing for you in so many ways. So you have to wrestle with that. Uh, are you really helping a cause or are you creating more of a confusion in the hearts and minds of others evangelistically? I would say if you're going to march, especially like down in D.C., and hey, maybe we should do this. This would be great. I would say march for life while you share the gospel of eternal life with those who you're marching with. That would be the right way to do it because the bulk of the people you'll be marching with will be Roman Catholics who do not know the gospel and do not understand the gospel, but they're actually in their marching thinking they're in some way fulfilling the gospel in their life and on their way to heaven. And there you are marching with them and actually, whether you know it or not, supporting them saying, you know, yeah, yeah, and they're thinking, yep, this is another one, a click in my box of good works that goes in my account that's helping, helping me ultimately get there. And that would be the last thing you'd ever want to support someone in thinking what is by far probably the greatest false teaching, heretical teaching of all time, that someone can work their way to heaven like that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I did get another question uh, through text. And they so, haven't come up to steps. Told you. Yeah. That's good. So this is another question. Um, they want to know your perspective on cremation versus burial. Okay, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Um, my perspective, well, my perspective doesn't matter. So um, is, there, is there a command in Scripture um, against cremation? No. Is there a clear uh, verse you can go to that, that says cremation is bad? No. I know there are people who will twist Scripture and, and turn Scripture and turn it to where cremation is idolatry and pagan worship and all of these things. Because in the Bible, when you see a body being burned, most of the time it was part of a pagan worship or part of an idolatrous king or something like that. Um, however, um, while that is true, you're, that's a big leap over to the other side of the aisle now that says all, crema all cremation is seen that way in the eyes of God, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's the struggle you have to wrestle with. What I would say is, is what I said earlier in a couple of the other questions is there is an implied assumption that Christians would be buried. That's what you see in Scripture, right? That's, that's, just, that's just, you can't read Scripture without that, right? And so... Um, that's what you find in Scripture. That's what was common. Christ was buried. He wasn't buried like we're buried. He was put in a. He was put inside a cave, and that was common, right? And um, and so you see that reality. And so, is it wrong to be cremated? I can't find anywhere in Scripture that would support someone saying that it's sinful to be cremated. I couldn't find that anywhere. And I've been asked that question so many times. And I've studied it. I've looked for it. I've looked for the clear command in scripture that says thou shalt not be cremated or that being cremated is a sin. I can't find it. What I can say is there's an assumption in scripture, meaning scripture talks about burial, talks about the reality of burial, talks about the bodies being raised and all those kind of things, which assumes uh, burial. And so there's that. I think you could build a case that there is an implied assumption that that is what is common and normal. But that, you can't take that and then go to the leap from that and say, well, this is what is assumed, and therefore that's what's supposed to be, you know, that's commanded. That's a big leap. 
And so you got to be careful. It's another one of those back to hermeneutics, back to reading scripture. When we take an implication and now we make it an exhortation. Right. And we have to be really careful when you do that. And many people do. So when it comes to that, I'm not against cremation because the Bible's nowhere against cremation. I just think, again, you have to be wise. There are, um, there are people and there are even cultures that have strong convictions about this. And um, I know some of those people and know some of those cultures where it's only burial and cremation is, is wrong. And, you know, they're Christians and they have to come to that conviction. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you in studying scripture, I can't, I can't find that. And the argument often goes like this, you know, that we desecrate the body. You know, the body is precious, which it is. You know, it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's all these verses that, again, these verses, proof texts, people will use. And they'll say, you know, when you cremate the body, you're destroying the body. And, my, and again, it's always just comes back to, well, what happens when you bury a body? It ultimately cremates. It ultimately disintegrates. That's how it works over time. It goes to dust because that's what Scripture says. Right. Dust you were created and dust you shall return. And uh, what do you do about the people who do um, unwittingly, meaning unknowingly or just by accident, get in a car accident and their body burns or a, in war and somebody's locked in a submarine and their body burns and, you know, what's going to happen with that? The Lord's going to resurrect everybody they're going to resurrect them bodily, whether you were burned, whether you were decapitated, whether you were electrocuted, it doesn't matter. So that's not beyond God's power to bring the body back together because uh, everybody's body disintegrates eventually. So cremation in many ways just, just hastens, hastens that. Yeah. So we have a few minutes left. Uh, if you could, Pastor, could you give us the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, so the gospel of Jesus Christ always begins with God. Um, God is holy and just and righteous, and all of life is about him, not about us. Therefore, God creates man for his own worship, for his own pleasure. And sadly, while he created man for himself, man turned away from God and wants to live for himself. That's called rebellion. That's called sin. Anytime man turns away from God to turn to himself, that is sin, that's rebellion, that's hatred towards God. And the Bible says that all are sinners, all are rebels, all have turned away from God and chosen their own path. And that sin comes upon all of us. And if that's not sad enough, the Bible says because of our sin, we've all, we all deserve judgment from God. We all deserve um, his wrath, his righteous, holy, perfect judgment on sin. Because God is holy and we are sinful, the two cannot go together, right? And so God needs to separate himself from us and he does that in judgment. And the sad reality is he will do that forever and ever as he separates all sinners from himself in the eternal lake of fire. But God did not leave us there. He provides a way for sinners to be reconciled back to him and that's through Jesus Christ, his own Son, which he sent to earth to die on behalf of sinners, to take their judgment, to take their sin, to take his wrath. And so Christ lived the life we were supposed to live, and Christ bore the judgment that we rightfully deserve. And God himself says, if man will simply turn to Christ, repent of his sins, admit his rebellion against God, and turn to Christ, follow Christ, believe in Christ as the atonement, as the sacrifice for sin, then God will forgive because Christ not only died, but he was buried and he was raised again on the third day as the son of God, proving that the death he died and the life he lived, the father accepted. And so God says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And that is the glorious gospel that's open to everyone, everywhere, anytime. Amen. That is the gospel. Thank you all for listening to the Truth Talks podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at the Truth Talks podcast at gmail.com. Also, you can leave us a voicemail at 612 88 Truth. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe. Just leave a five star review if you can. Share it with a friend. And uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for tuning in today. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment. If you have a question, please send them to the Truth Talks Podcast at gmail.com. Visit our Instagram and Twitter at the Truth Talks Podcast. And visit our website at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Delighting in the word that we might walk in the truth. A ministry of Bellcroft Bible Church.